0: It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. Lots to talk about. Did that TikTok hack really happen? Steve says, yeah, probably not. There's a new Chrome Zero Day you definitely will want to patch. An Oxford University physicist says quantum computing is bogus. And then Steve will reveal his brand new favorite science fiction author and a new 20-volume series plus a look at why people are embedding AWS credentials in their apps. It's a bad idea. All coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love.
1: From people you trust. This This is Twit.
0: This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 887. Recorded Tuesday, September 6th, 2022. Embedded AWS credentials. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Give your team an engaging IT development platform to level up their skills. Volume discounts start at five seats. Go to itpro.tv/security now and, and make sure to mention SN30 to your IT Pro TV account executive for thirty percent off or more on a business plan. And by Collide. K-O-L-I-D-E, is an endpoint security solution that uses the most powerful untapped resource in IT. Your end users. Visit collide.com slash security now to learn more and activate a free 14-day trial today. No credit card required. It's time for Security Now. Get ready to protect yourself. Put on your hard hat we got some construction to do with Mr. Steve Gibson at GRC put
1: your put your hard hat on your hard head a hard hat with a propeller if you had you're listening to this yeah. podcast yeah. you're you don't, you're not soft line it with tin foil and you'll be set <laughs> so uh, here we are beginning of September security now episode 887 uh, <laughs> and this, okay so i didn't have a topic for most of the setup for this Until I ran across a report that Symantec just published about their findings. And, and, okay, I should finish that thought. Their findings for the cloud security of mobile apps. And I was a little confused because they were talking about supply chain. And I thought, how is mobile app security about supply chain. And now I get it. And it's really interesting. So it became... So I moved things around. I was going to start talking about this grumbly physicist from Oxford who doesn't (laughs) think that... He's a quantum physicist uh, who doesn't think that this quantum computing stuff is ever going to come to anything. Oh, music
0: to my ears. I've been grumbling about this for a long time.
1: I know. And And I'm no physicist.
0: So that's... No, but Leo,
1: when... Factoring 33 is an achievement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so so that got moved to the end of our discussion of all the other stuff, and semantic story now takes the lead, which puts it at the at the far end. But and, but we got a lot of other cool things to talk about first. So we are going to take a look at Google's just announced and launched latest. Open source software vulnerability rewards program. We ask the question whether TikTok leaked more than 2 billion of their users' records. We look at Chrome's urgent update to uh, close its sixth zero day of 2022 and at a worrisome uh the feature i think it's a bug in chrome i have a little demo for our listeners which is a little bit unnerving everyone can do it uh i also have a somewhat well news of a somewhat hidden auto run facility in pi pip tool which is used for downloading and installing python packages in That feature is being used to run malware, to the surprise of people using PIP. Um, And, as I said, we're going to examine a recent anti-quantum computing, eh, we'll call it an opinion, it borders on a rant, from an Oxford University quantum physicist. Then I've got two bits of miscellany, three pieces of listener feedback, a fun Spinrite video discovery from this morning, and... I'm most, frankly, excited about this than anything else. My discovery of a wonderful and blessedly prolific sci-fi author. Um, And after all that, we're going to look at, as I said, Semantic's research into their discovery of more than 1,800 mobile apps, which they found to be leaking critical AWS cloud credentials Primarily due to the carelessness in the use of today's software supply chain. So, I don't think our listeners are going to be bored. <laughs> uh, no, in fact, I've been waiting for this show all week.
0: <laughs> There's so much to talk about. I, you know, and uh, is the funniest thing happened on the radio show uh, on Sunday. Somebody oh. called and said, "Do you already know what I'm talking about? The false positive?" Yes. Oh. And I said, what? Yeah, because apparently a lot of Windows users uh, suddenly thought they were, in fact, all Windows users (laughs) suddenly thought they were infected. Uh, Anyway, just so many stories, so little time. Let's get to the show in a second. First, a word from our sponsor, the great folks at IT Pro TV. They are so happy, by the way, Steve, to sponsor this show. It's such a nice relationship um, because so many of your listeners are IT professionals. So many of them have become IT professionals, and I know you get email. I get email from people who say, "You know, I had a dead end job, and I was listening to the show, and I heard the ad for IT Pro TV, and now I have a great career in IT." Hear from this, hear from people all the time about this. IT Pro TV uh, started in, I think it was uh, 2013. Started advertising that year with us. And so many of you now are IT pro TV graduates, although we really never do graduate from IT pro TV I mean uh, there's that's one of the things that's fun about IT right It's not a you don't learn it and then you're done. You 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 learn it. You get the search, You get the job, and then you want to keep research. Get get new skills. Learn more things. Things are constantly changing, so it's an ever changing field. So really, I don't think you ever graduate from IT Pro TV. But we talk so much about the individual. I thought it'd be nice today to talk about IT Pro TV for your IT team. So if you're a boss, if you're a manager, if you've got an IT team, this is for you. Uh, you know, you want to keep your team upskilled, right? I would point out they also want to keep up skilled. Uh, and you may say, well, I don't want to get them too good. They might leave me. No, no, no. And if they do, that's fine. That's good for everybody. But honestly, what you want them to do is have the latest skills, the latest information in all the most important critical areas for bus- for your business. Security, job one, right? Networking, desktop maintenance. There's so much to learn and they want to learn it so and you want them to learn it so this is a benefit you can give your IT employees they will really appreciate cuz IT Pro TV is not a grind it's not a, it's not a chore it's not a task more than 80% of the people who start a video on IT Pro TV they know this they see the stats actually go all the way through cuz it's engaging IT Pro TV hires experts in those fields people are really they're all working professionals they really know their stuff but they have one thing that not everybody has they have a passion for what they're doing and a great sense of humor and a great sense of fun. So they make it an enjoyable process to gain these skills. They're entertaining. They're binge-worthy. Your team will stay interested. They'll stay vested in learning, and that's what you want. And by the way, you get every kind of training for your team in one place, every vendor, every skill you need, uh, Microsoft, Cisco, Linux. I, I almost hesitate to give you a list because you'll say, well, what about this? It's all, uh, trust me, it's all there. Apple, security, cloud. They even have some soft skills like um, uh, compliance, marketing, things like that. 5,800 hours of training in their library. Now, some of you say, well, wait a minute. It's It's been 5,800 hours for a couple of years now. Yeah, but it's not the same 5,800 hours. They IT Pro TV has seven studios that are running all day, Monday through Friday, creating new content because stuff changes. There's new certs, old certs go by the wayside, the tests get new questions, software gets updated, new software comes along. So yeah, it's 5,800 hours, but that gets turned over constantly. Videos go from the studio to the library within 24 hours. It's all super up to date. And that's something you cannot say. I have to say for any book any on, you know, any any class, any technical school. A lot of times, you get instructors teaching stuff they used to use way back when. No, no, you are getting the latest. And the IT Pro TV business plan includes the best dashboard ever, so you can completely track your team's results. You can manage seats, assign, unassign individuals. You can create groups, ad hoc groups, and assign even as little as just one video, not the whole course, but just one video to that group, saying, "You guys really got to learn more about." I, I don't know, you know. Uh, Fido2 authentication, something like that, and they can watch these two videos. You'll see metrics like logins, viewing time, tracks completed, so you'll be able to justify to the higher ups. Yeah, we're using it; they're using it. You'll know exactly who is. Um, uh, you get immediate insight into the team's viewing patterns, their progress, so you know you're getting your money's worth, and you and have all the information you need. Don't forget, IT Pro TV does have individual plans. I think you know that. But I want you to. I really wanted to emphasize the team plans. Give your team the IT development platform they need. Level up their skills while enjoying the journey. It's a great benefit for them and a great benefit for you. For teams as small as two, as large as a thousand or more, uh, the volume discounts start with just five seats. Go to itpro.tv/slash security now. Let me say that again because that's important to us. That's the special address for this show. Itpro.tv/slash security now. There is an offer code. And this offer codes for individuals, but also for the enterprise plan, SN30 SN30. Just mention that to your IT Pro TV account executive, then they'll know you saw this, and they will give you at least 30 percent off, at least 30 percent off on a business plan, probably more. But, but, but it's really important to us that you mention that code. Go to itprotv now, offer code SN30 it's important to you too. you're going to save a lot of money. Thank you, IT Pro TV. We really appreciate uh, your support of the very important work Steve does here, and
1: nothing more important
0: than the picture of the week.
1: (laughs) Okay, so this is just so classically XKCD. I I love it. Um, It's titled General Physics Safety Tip, and it's a very small flowchart, very simple flowchart, which is designed to help you decide where to stand. <laughs> uh, it it answers the question and poses it: Should I stand near this thing? <laughs> <laughs> and, it's a and, simple question, but
0: an important question.
1: Oh my God! Well, yes, uh, and it's got then. So it's got that it poses that question in the top box, which feeds into the decision triangle, or I'm sorry, the decision diamond. Where it the, uh, it the way to answer the question, should I stand near this thing, is to ask, well, are physicists excited about it? And so if they're, if the physicists are not excited about it, then uh, maybe you should stand near it. <laughs> if physicists are excited about it, no. then no. Definitely no, definitely not. Get away. Do not get... For, run. St- get <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh-oh. Steve froze. In general... Says retcon five, avoid exposure to any temperatures, pressures, particle engineer, energies, or states of matter that physicists think are neat. <laughs> I love it, Steve. That's awesome. That's, he, Randall is so good. You know, I interviewed him on a triangulation some years ago. I'm so ago. glad you did. Yeah. And,
1: you know, and I, and I was thinking, like, this is the kind of stuff. That we would never have were it not for the internet. Yes, I mean the internet brings God all bless kinds the of nerds. crap. Yes, you know it brings all kinds of crap along with it. You know it's not just inevitable. But like this, this all before the internet, we had magazines that were you know, <laughs> right, monthly, right. But you know, they weren't and, up to and date, you, and no, yeah. And the New the New Yorker would have some great cartoons, every you know that would like stand out. But you didn't have like a you couldn't get an IV of of this stuff. Yeah, and this is just
0: Randall Monroe, Uh It was tri- It went back in twenty nineteen. Triangulation four twelve. If you haven't uh, heard it yet, great interview with the creator of XKCD. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And, Thank goodness the, the internet's given us some real. Nice things, and that's one of them. You
1: know, them. and and you think about it, like the, the the bounds and the depth of his creativity. Like, how, how where did this come from? Right? I mean, like you, you, he he could easily think, well, I don't have any good ideas, and then here's like this, which is just right, <laughs> it's just wonderful. And in days gone by, where would you go? Would you
0: go to a newspaper and say I'd like to publish this comic, and they go, no, no one will understand this. Right? Um, this guy with his genius capabilities probably would be under uh, employed and, and no yeah. one would know about him so yeah yes. yeah it's, it's, great. it's
1: why it's why when when people have asked me sort of like for some career advice i've said to them i would specialize yeah. that is be the be become invest however many tens of thousands of hours are necessary to become the best something yeah. and it doesn't matter what. Well, I mean, it has to have some application. But but the point is well, – not now with the, the internet, not even then.
0: <laughs> not even then. That. No, that's true. You know? Uh, if, if, but, uh, if a but, thousand other people might
1: be interested, that's enough. Yes. And, and the idea is that, you know, if you were like just the unbelievable best plumber, well, in the old days, well – All of the toilets in your city would be working. You know them, yes. You know, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't have much marketing reach beyond that. Right now, you know, the Vatican might hire you because you know they really need your help. I think that's brilliant, Steve. Yes, and and they could find you. That's the point. Exactly, they would be able to find. They just put into Google, "Who is the best plumber?" And up would come Maury Mergenstein, and they. Go find him and say, Murray, we need some help here with the Pope's uh,
0: commode. Actually, or, you or, just told the story of uh, Father Robert Ballister. That's uh, <laughs> that's in a nutshell uh, the, the secret to his success.
1: So there yeah? you go. Yeah, yeah, okay. So last week, Google announced and launched a new Google targeted open source software vulnerability rewards program. I say it's Google targeted because you know, it's for their open source software projects, but OK, their money's good. So this is what they said. And yes, it's a little bit commercial, but it's still interesting. And after all, they're giving away money. So they said, today we're launching Google's open source software vulnerability rewards program, which because of the mouthful, you can shorten as OSS VRP to reward discoveries of vulnerabilities in Google's open source projects. As the maintainer of major projects such as Golang, Angular, and Fuchsia, Google is among the largest contributors, they write, and users of open source in the world. With the addition of Google's OSS VRP to our family of VRPs, researchers can now be rewarded for finding bugs that could potentially impact the entire open-source ecosystem. Google, they write, has been committed to supporting security researchers and bug hunters for over a decade. The original VRP program, or just VRP, Uh, established to compensate and thank those who helped make Google's code more more secure, was one of the first in the world and is now approaching its 12th anniversary. Over time, our VRP lineup has expanded to include programs focused on Chrome, Android, and other areas. Collectively, these programs have rewarded more than 13,000 submissions, totaling over $38 million paid. That's pretty good on average. The average uh, – the, they said the addition of this new program addresses the ever more prevalent reality of rising supply chain compromises. And actually we're going to be winding up talking about supply chain compromises of a different ilk. They said last year saw a 650 percent Year-over-year increase in attacks targeting the open-source software supply chain, including headliner incidents like CodeCov and, of course, Log4J vulnerability that showed the destructive potential of a single open-source vulnerability – Google's OSS-VRP as part of our $10 billion commitment to improving cybersecurity, including securing the supply chain against these attacks, these types of attacks, for both Google's users and open source consumers worldwide. And finally, Google's OSS-VRP encourages researchers to report vulnerabilities with the greatest real and potential impact on open source software under Google under the Google portfolio, the program focuses on all up-to-date versions of open-source software, including including repository settings stored in the public repositories of Google-owned GitHub organizations. So Google, Google APIs, Google Cloud Platform, and so forth. And, and this is, I thought, was surprising and significant those projects, third party dependencies with prior notification to the affected dependency required before submission to Google's OSS VRP. So if you find a problem, not only in Google's own stuff, but in something they're pulling into their project and are dependent upon that qualifies too. So you fix it there and then you say, Hey Google, I found something that just helped you pay up. Uh, so they and they finish uh the top rewards go to vulnerabilities found in the most sensitive projects uh oh <laughs> i did get a kick out of this depending on the severity of the vulnerability and the project's importance rewards will range from $100 to 31,337 and of course 1337 is you know hacker esque you know it's leet upside down so Yes, a little tip of the hat to the the hacker community. Anyway, so I've got links to where to go to find out more information. It's generally at bughunters.google.com. You can start there and then browse around. They've got rules for qualifications and and so forth. But and but overall, what occurred to me as I was reading through this and in, and choosing to include it in today's to start off today's podcast is the degree to which bug bounties have become a part of today's modern software ecosystem. It's no longer a surprise for a company to be offering a bug bounty for the discovery and responsible reporting of problems found in their software. But it wasn't so long ago that this was unheard of or that it was an enlightened exception. Today, It's the way large companies do business. They figure if we can't find all of the important bugs ourselves, and what we're seeing is that apparently no one can, then you reward the white hats who do. And more significantly, as we've seen, this sort of bug hunting, while not guaranteeing a steady paycheck, at least not at the start, could increasingly be considered a valid and workable career of sorts. So very cool that, I mean, I'm glad to see Google's doing this. You know, they've got the money to do it. They're going to get the benefit. And, and again, you know, they've obviously got a very capable stable of internal security researchers and bug hunters. Yet even so, they're saying, uh, we'll take any help we can get. Which is really the mature thing to do it's in this day and
0: age. It's also a defensive move because, as you, you know, we've talked about many times. There's places like Zerodium offering big bucks for Google flaws as well,
1: ah, mm-hmm. and not not fixing the packages but selling them to yes, typically state sponsored. Yeah. Yes, bad guys. Yeah, a good point. So, did TikTok leak? billion, with a B, user records. TikTok says no, but other independent researchers are not so sure. Every week, while I'm looking through the past week's news, half, really half of what I see are breach reports. You know, this or that company reports that it was breached and bad guys may have obtained the data for typically a couple hundred thousand of their users, you know, more or less. You know, and OK, that's not good. But there's generally not much more to say about it. You know, it's a bit like, you know, this or that company got hit by ransomware. Not good. We're sorry. Hope you recover. But the potential exposure of more than two billion user records by TikTok. Well, you know, we're talking about this one because of who it is and of the size, scale and impact of the possible breach. When news of this appeared last week, TikTok pressed their respond to the press button and out popped a statement reading TikTok prioritizes the privacy and security of our users data. Our security team investigated these claims and found no evidence of a security breach, unquote. Then the button popped back out. But TikTok's canned-sounding denial follows reports of a hack that surfaced on the Breach Forum's message board Saturday, with the threat actor noting that the server holds 2.05 billion records records in a single humongous 790-gigabyte database. The hacking group known as Blue Hornet, also known as Against the West, or ATW, tweeted, quote, Who would have thought that TikTok would decide to store all their internal backend source code on one Alibaba cloud instance using a trashy password, unquote. Bob Diachenko, who's known as the the Open Database Hunter, uh, and he's a threat intelligence researcher at security at uh, Security Discovery. He said the breach is real. In quotes, I mean, like that's exactly what he said, real, and. That the data is likely to have originated from Hangzhou Julun Network Technology Company Limited rather than TikTok. But Troy Hunt wasn't yet convinced. Troy tweeted, quote, This is so far pretty inconclusive. Some data matches production info, albeit publicly accessible info. Some data is junk but it could be non-production or test data. It's a bit of a mixed bag so far, unquote. And then just before I put everything together, I checked both of their Twitter feeds for any updates. Bob Diachenko's feed had two updates. The first was, said, update. While there is definitely a breach, it is still work in progress to confirm the origin of data Could be a third party, unquote. That was followed up sometime later with update two. Okay, TikTok breach is real. Our team analyzed publicly exposed repos to confirm partial users' data leak, unquote. But then Troy retweeted a tweet and added, The thread on the hacking forum with the samples of alleged TikTok data has been deleted and the user banned for, quote, lying about data breaches, unquote. The group that was banned, as explained in the tweet that Troy retweeted, was that same Blue Hornet against the West who made the original allegation. So it appears that the whole thing was, as TikTok originally claimed, not a breach at all. And though this story sort of cancels itself out, I wanted to share this because it's a great example of what is continually going on behind the scenes in the security industry. Not all players are on the up and up. And not everything, surprise, that's tweeted is factual. And Troy, for whom this is certainly not his first rodeo, knows to remain skeptical until all the facts are in and proven.
0: Yeah, so, we, you know, we have to deal with this all the time. Uh, a lot of other uh, publications, hoping to get the links, uh, will go with this. Um, when I saw this story, w- one of the first people I looked at was Troy Hunt. His yep. skepticism immediately stopped me cold. It's very yep. easy for some jerk to claim this, get a lot of attention, and worse, it's – a lot of publications will just jump on it because they know that's how you get you drive traffic. So as yeah. as any journalist, you you really got to be. You know, we're very skeptical about all this stuff until it's proven uh, to be the case, and we do not yeah. jump on these things.
1: And in fact, even Brian Krebs, you know, who is a well known great uh, jur- journalism reporter of you know, within this whole uh, Infosec,
0: I'm not going to say great anymore. Go ahead, keep going.
1: Okay, well, he got in big trouble say, with this
0: ubiquity thing,
1: and that's what I—that's exactly what I was going to say. Was that he did, like, say, you know, I—I I had a single source, I went with it, and I apologized to <clears throat> ubiquity, and because he to got retract.
0: sued, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's pretty much widely believed that this was part of the settlement with ubiquity, and uh, in fact, he would have lost a, because. He knew the guy was the hacker uh, and continued to run the story when he should have immediately said, I was wrong. This guy was the guy who perpetrated the hack. He used me to uh, basically to um, uh, extort ubiquity. Um, And in fact, you know, yeah. So I think Brian, I'm sorry, but Brian's got a black mark in my book now. I'm Hmm. not sure I'm going to fully trust him going forward.
1: Yeah, a little um, bit too much inertia behind the story, yeah, I guess. Yeah.
0: And again, a case of I think somebody very anxious to get clicks, uh, and as a result, not being very uh, thoughtful. And, and
1: and unfortunately, you know, if clicks are your model, then you have to. It's it's really tough to yeah. say, uh, whoops, that's that's you know, that's not what happened. Yeah. So yeah.
0: So Krebs has fully um, retracted now and taken all those stories down, but in yeah. the kind of anodyne language that tells me this was part of the settlement. You know,
1: I see. So not a huge mea culpa. No, just okay. Well, an urgent Chrome update uh, required a and got a, a a urgent patch last Friday. Chrome bumped up to you know version blah 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 ending in dot one o two to urgently close a vulnerability that was being actively exploited in the wild as usual, little more is being said of you know c v e twenty twenty two three zero seven five which involves all we know is insufficient data validating in Mojo, which is a library of routines to provide platform-agnostic interprocess communication. Google credited an anonymous researcher with their report of the high-severity flaw on August 30th. And I'm again impressed by the Chromium team's three-day incident response. You know, to, to learn about it on the 30th and push it out on Friday the 2nd, that's great. So this is zero-day number six for the year in Chrome, and while it's not likely to be an emergency for everyone, everyone, you know, as always, is advised to be sure they're running that version ending in .102. Uh, The update applies to the desktop versions of Chrome for Windows, Mac, OS, and Linux. And, as always, the users of Chromium-based Browsers, you know, Edge, Brave, Opera, and Vivaldi are also advised that, you know, to look around for updates uh, for theirs when they're available. Okay, now, Leo, <laughs> if you've got a version of Chrome around, you want to go to webplatform.news, W-E-B-P-L-A-T-F-O-R-M.news. And <clears throat> what comes up is an, an innocuous-looking page but it just puts something on your clipboard without your permission. So uh, you now open like Notepad or something and hit Control V to paste, and you will see a message reading, hello. This message is in your clipboard because you visited the website, Web Platform News in a browser that allows websites to write to the clipboard without the user's permission. Sorry for the inconvenience. For more information wow. about this, yeah, huh? <laughs> no, it did not happen to me. Uh, I'm not using Chrome. Okay. Would this it's happen on Chrome all browsers? Was, uh, uh, I tried it on Edge, and it all, yes, it's got to be a Chromium based browser. Ah, so let not, me try it on Edge. Not, okay. I was not using Firefox. Firefox. Uh, Good for you, because Firefox. Now, Firefox has a related problem, and this wasn't clear to me as I was tracking this down. So, again, to all of our listeners, uh, in a Chromium-based browser, Chrome or, you know, Edge, Brave, Opera, Vivaldi, that I was just talking about, webplatform.news, and then, like, open Notepad and hit Control-V to paste, and you'll get a happy little message planted onto your Oh, clipboard! <laughs> hey, right. You are, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully <laughs> to our listening audience, it's needless to say, this is not safe. Yeah. Uh, and more than being unsafe, some consider it to be a major security issue. The problem is that the browser's interaction with the clipboard is somewhat tricky. And web developers have been tinkering around with it, considering the deliberate addition of some non-interactive access. You know, it seems pretty clear to me that a user should have to clearly highlight and mark something on a web page, then explicitly issue some form of clipboard copy command for their browser to be given permission to modify their system's clipboard. Now, and, and what it feels to me is that, like, the the web designers m- must be saying, "Hey, well, other you know native first party OS apps are able to put something on the clipboard if they want to. Why shouldn't a browser? Why should it not be you know equally entitled? Well, <laughs> the answer is." You know, browsers are out hitting random pages, pulling ads in from God knows where, running scripts from who knows who, and all of that should have the ability to put stuff on your desktop clipboard without your knowledge or permission? I don't think so. So – okay so you know i i could see the benefits of having a web page announce that something has already been placed on the user's clipboard you know if that was like clearly in their benefit if they if they really wanted that to happen but unfortunately it offers bad guys far more you know far, far too much opportunity for carnage and there appears to be some lack of clarity on this front. Web developer Jeff Johnson said that what he's calling the clipboard poisoning attack was accidentally introduced in Chrome version 104. Uh, Okay, and I don't know what 104 he's talking about. We just got 102, and that's what I'm running, and it's in there. But looking over the pertinent Chromium discussion thread... It actually kind of muddies the water. I have a link to the, in the show notes to the discussion thread. But, for example, last Monday, that is Monday before last, not yesterday, uh, eight days ago, from Microsoft on August 29th, Mike, a Microsoft Edge person using the Chromium Engine said it's PRI 3, which I guess means priority 3, because this behavior has been here since we shipped Async Clipboard APIs. It is not a regression. However, I agree that this should be fixed. What? Uh, Okay, so not a regression means it isn't something that we broke. But this guy is saying, I agree this should be fixed. And we should send a breaking change email to blink-dev to figure out the right process to add the transient user activation restriction to the APIs. And then he says, I guess Pry one makes sense since Firefox and Safari are also considering adding the transient user activation. And then parens, instead of a user gesture requirement, which is what they have now. The reason Leo it didn't happen to you under Firefox is due to the deliberate presence of something they they're calling the user gesture requirement, meaning you have to do something in order to like enable this event. No. And so it is it is writing not reading.
0: I mean if I reading the clipboard correct, would be very correct. problematic. Correct. What is the hazard of writing to my clipboard? Okay, so um, I, can see the, said, I can see the usefulness of it, but I yes. don't know what the problem is.
1: So Jeff says, for example, while the problem exists in Apple and Safari, and Apple, Safari, and Mozilla and Firefox as well, uh, what makes the issue more severe in Chrome is that the requirement for a user gesture to copy content to the clipboard is currently broken. Uh, uh, Jeff appears to be – okay, so I, I have this here somewhere. It says, oh um, – the idea that the danger of this is not glaringly apparent to the web developers is a bit surprising. Uh, so, um, so uh, okay, I, I sort of got thrown off here. Uh, <laughs> I
0: apologize. I, sh- I shouldn't I know. interject.
1: I'm sorry. Because <laughs> I, did, I, did, I have that covered here. Okay. Go back notes.
0: to your – you can answer – Put a pin in it and get to that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so
1: we're going to get to your question. Thank Leo. you. <laughs> uh, so so the, so the, uh, so last Tuesday on August 30th, the chromium guy in this thread said, to be clear, reading, he had it in all caps, from the clipboard always requires a permission. He says, very much like geolocation, microphone, etc. And he said, to see what this looks like, check out this demo site. And there's a link to async-clipboard-api.glitch.me. Then he says, writing plain text or images to the clipboard can currently be accomplished without a permission or user gesture, although the site and tab in question must be foregrounded. He says, we are looking to tighten up the security model here. And he said neither one of these behaviors has changed recently, nor does the new tab page test rely on permissionless gesture, gestureless clipboard access. Anyway, so anyway, so at this point, the, the, the web developer who thinks this is an issue, Jeff Johnson, says, you know that Safari and, uh, that Safari and Firefox are considering making this smoother not requiring there to be a gesture. <coughs> so Jeff appears to be saying that Safari and Firefox require the user to have some interaction with the page, though not necessarily a clipboard copy. He, he does say that clicking a link or pressing the arrow key to scroll down gives the website permission to overwrite your system clipboard. So you don't even need to do, you just need to have any interaction with the page in order for that permission currently in Safari and Firefox to be given. And they're considering synchronizing themselves with Chromium where even that's not necessary. So although the Chromium guys are saying, uh, and, and even the Microsoft guy is saying, maybe we better rethink this. So, the idea that the danger of this is okay, so blah 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 blah. Um, okay, so uh, aside from being annoying and, and worrying, we have the ability of any web page to replace my system's clipboard data without my permission. Okay, if I were if I were using my computer and I had something on the clipboard. And then I went to paste it somewhere else, and I got some message, I got some, like, image or text that I had never seen before. I would be sure that my machine had been infected with malware of some kind hmm. that had messed with my clipboard without my permission. No, I mean, I would be
0: freaked out. That's somebody who doesn't understand how the clipboard works, because it happens all the time. Password managers wipe the clipboard so, you're pasted, so your clipboard can't be read with the password on it. It's not at all unusual for clipboards to have multiple different versions of the content, depending on where you're pasting, and do content-aware paste. So you might get an image in some case. You might get a text in another case. The clipboard is, co- is
1: often manipulated by the OS. This is not at all unusual. So you're saying if you pasted the contents of your clipboard and it was something you had never seen before and you had never pasted into the clipboard, that wouldn't concern you? Well, yeah, I mean, Come I on. guess it
0: shouldn't be something random,
1: but it clipboards are Leo, often it, manip-
0: manipulated by the operating system. That's not unusual. By
1: you, by user hitting edit, paste, no, 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 edit, no, no, no.
0: copy. No, 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 no. I mean, LastPass wipes. It, how many times you have a, a password on your clipboard that gets wiped after 10 seconds or you set the time it gets wiped automatically there's things happen to your clipboard all the time and as i said uh clipboards have uh, in, at least on the mac probably not on
1: windows okay so you're saying you would have no problem if random pages that you visit are writing to your well usually they do clipboard. that for utility right
0: so they'll paste something in there uh that you're going to want to uh a link or something that you're going to want to pay somewhere else, so they'll try to do it for utility that's why this feature exists
1: all right, so it's scaring you. I got it. Is it hazardous um, certainly, you could imagine that, you're, that you' that a a site or page manipulates you so that you you have a a, 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 a cryptocurrency. Address on your clipboard, which the web page changes behind your back without you knowing it. That's or a good, pastes. there's a
0: good malicious use. But we say hey, or, all the time, or, you shouldn't trust your clipboard, right? I mean, we say that all
1: the time. Okay, so, so the issue is no user permission. The, I mean, no user action at all. You, you go to the New York Times and an ad on the New York put, Times put in your
0: clipboard. Yeah, yeah
1: no puts anything it wants right not the ad it puts anything it wants in your clipboard it just to me i mean you know the good news is the the the, the now that this has come to light that the web designers are saying oh uh okay we need to do something i'm sure that they thought it was cool that you'd be interacting with a web app and the and and the web app would say, "Okay, uh, we're all finished doing what you wanted. the The results are waiting for you on your clipboard." Um, I don't have any problem in you know using Google Docs and marking something and then hitting Control V and it gets pasted to my clipboard. That's what I want. But I have a problem if I go to some website and without and knowing because because I'm like you, Leo. I mean, I'm using my computer. I know what's on my clipboard. You know and 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 typically I'm copying and pasting things, and yes, I've also ha- often had the experience sometimes it's annoying in fact that lastPass has erased a, erased a password you know it's b- always before, annoying. I, before <laughs> I was able to paste it <laughs> right. somewhere
0: but it's for good reason
1: yeah And um, so I go okay, yeah no I F-I think F-I-R.
0: okay I'll, yeah, I could see the I could see the hazard here you that was a perfect example of it you know because you can't really uh, crypto uh, account numbers so long you might not remember. The one you had cut, and instead put a different one in, that would be a b- and, big problem.
1: And yeah. normally, you don't even attempt. It's like it's like right. a long password. You're you not don't even attempt to, to, to type like, it. You know, yeah. memorize it, yeah. and then make sure that. So it we use it copy
0: and paste for the, for something like that all the time. Yeah, that's a good right. point.
1: Yeah, yeah. So anyway, the good news is that these guys are looking at it. I just thought it was it it was a little jarring to just go to a page and you know and have it. Change our clipboard without us giving permission. And so to me, it's just because, I mean, yes, it's true that any app that we have on our desktop could do this, but we would consider it a, a, a misbehaving app if it was changing our clipboard in a way that didn't benefit us. And we know what's on the internet, you know, I would say way less than half of it benefits us. So I don't want, you know pages that i happen to encounter or or components of pages like an ad to run some script that changes my clipboard that's just yeah. like hands hands yeah. off my clipboard i ju- i see- i think there's
0: utility and that's why they put it in yes but i could see the yes. ha- potential hazard yeah
1: and yeah and, you know they're wanting it to be a first class citizen of the desktop and my only reservation is eh, Not everything that lands in my browser is something that I want to trust
0: my desktop. You actually raised probably the real reason why Google did this Google Docs, which is a browser only experience, but they want it to be like a desktop
1: app, right? Yep. Or Gmail. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I use the crap out of the, 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 the Docs, you know, cross clipboard ability. In fact, oh, one of my biggest peeves is that you cannot copy an image out of Google Docs, and move it somewhere else. It, like, refuses to let you have it for some reason. It just drives me nuts. But, you know, you have to jump through hoops to do that. But anyway, uh, speaking of unwanted features... (laughs) Oh, actually, speaking of my throat being dry... (laughs) I got
0: a wanted feature. Another (laughs) fine commercial. We weren't speaking of that because I can't speak. Security Now is brought to you by collide actually this is a client that i love and a a product i'm a big fan of collide we've talked about it before collide is endpoint security for companies that use slack that is awesome it uses the most powerful untapped resource in it your end users i think we've all learned a lesson from trying to shut down end users from trying to lock them in using mdm and you know, I mean, going to the extreme of gluing uh, USB ports. Sure, your users can really get you in trouble. But if you can get your users to be on your side, if you can teach them and enroll them as your partners in security, it's going to be a much better experience. Whether you're trying to achieve security goals for a third-party audit or your own compliance standards, it's, it's understandable. And it is, in fact, I think, the conventional wisdom that you treat every device like Fort Knox. But I think we've also seen now that MDMs force employees basically to become enemies. It it degrades performance. It treats privacy as an afterthought. It, It keeps them from doing the things they want. What happens? They end up using their own laptops or their own devices. And now you've got a huge problem. Wouldn't it be better to turn your users into shadow IT to help you out? Collide does things differently. Instead of forcing changes on users, Collide sends them security recommendations through Slack, the the platform they're using every day all the time. Collide will automatically notify your team when their devices are insecure. And by the way, they cover a a huge range of potential problems. Explain why this is an issue and give them step-by-step instructions on how to solve the problem. They reach out to employees via a friendly Slack. And by the way, it's a DM. It's not a public message, but a friendly Slack DM educating them about company policies, about security. It helps you build a culture in which everyone contributes to security instead of trying to thwart it. And they contribute because everybody understands how and why to do it. I think this is brilliant. And you're going to love it as an IT administrator because Kali gives you a single dashboard that lets you monitor the security of your whole fleet, Mac, Windows, or Linux. It's completely cross-platform. You can see at a glance which employees, for instance, have their disks encrypted. Have their OSs up to date, their password manager installed. It makes it easy to prove compliance to your auditors, to your customers, to your leadership, and your users will love it. So that's Collide, user-centered, cross-platform, endpoint security for teams that slack. You can meet your compliance goals by putting users first. You can. It's a little leap of faith. I understand a little trust thing. I know you're going to... You've got to try it. K-O-L-I-D-E. Collide. K O L I D E dot com slash security now. Follow that link. They'll hook you up with a goodie bag, including a t-shirt. Yes, you get a free t-shirt. This is one of the they have several designs. uh, Just for activating the free trial. I wear my collide t-shirt with pride. K-O-L-I-D E dot com slash security. Now, it's just an idea whose time has come. I think it's brilliant. You you at least owe it to yourself to check it out. Collide! And now a collision with security and Steve Gibson.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Steve. And that segue was no less awkward than mine going into it. (laughs) So, okay. Speaking of unwanted. We collided. Is that what you're saying? We did indeed. (laughs) Uh, PyPy is the Python language's popular package index repository, uh, inviting alliteration. Python package index, thus PyPy. Uh, And in another discovery that would expose developers to increased risk of a supply chain attack, it was found that nearly one-third of the packages in PyPy Trigger an automatic code execution upon downloading them. Now, you know, at, at, you know, sort of as with auto-copying to the user's clipboard. If it's what the user wants, then fine. Having a Python script auto-run after downloading a well-designed and benign package—well, that's just convenience, right? It just like if you say pip install, you want it to do that. But a researcher at Checkmarks noted in a technical report they published last week that a worrying feature in PIP's command allows code to automatically run when developers are merely downloading, not necessarily installing, a package. He added that the feature is alarming because he said a great deal of malicious packages are finding are finding. We, I'm sorry, we are finding in the wild, use this feature of code execution upon installation or download to achieve higher infection rates. Yeah, that would follow. Um, anyway, one of the ways by which packages can be installed for Python is by executing the pip install command, which in turn invokes a file called setup.py, which comes bundled along with the module setup py as its name implies is a setup script that's used to specify metadata associated with the package including its dependencies it provides some of the you know the welcome automation that makes package management com- convenient in this environment and in what amounts to a documentation flaw meaning that it was undocumented and, and actually surprising a cautious user, might opt to use the safer-appearing pip-download command since its documentation states, quote, pip-download does the same resolution and downloading as pip-install, but instead of installing the dependencies, it collects the downloaded distributions into the directory provided, which defaults to the current directory. In other words, the command can be used to download a Python package without having it installed on the system and all of its dependencies. But as it turns out, executing the download command also runs the embedded setup.py script, resulting in the execution of whatever malicious code it might contain. It turns out that setup.py auto-running only occurs when the package contains a tar.gz file instead of a wheel file, which is .whl. Although PIP defaults to using wheels instead of tar.gz files, attackers take advantage of this behavior to intentionally publish Python packages, you know, malicious Python packages, obviously, without a .whl file leading to the execution of the malicious code present in the setup script. The checkmark's report noted that, quote, when a user downloads a Python package from PyPy, PIP will preferentially use the .whl file, but will fall back to the .targz file if the .whl file is not present. At the moment, There's not much that Python users can do. If pip is used to either install or download a PyPy package, bad guys can arrange to run their script.py on the user's machine. And, you know, given all the recent troubles with supply chain attacks, that's a bit nerve-wracking. So anyway, I just wanted to bring that to our listeners' attention. You know, Python is popular and only becoming more so uh, for many good reasons. Uh, and so this looks like a problem that needs to get addressed somehow. Yeah, this
0: uh, is also a problem with some Linux uh, distros. Arch, for instance, has a user repository that if you you don't have to, but many people use an Arch user repository installer that will run the script. And uh, the better ones will say, no, no, you got to look at the script before you run it. Uh, and there are plenty of sites you go to and you install, you know, Homebrew is one for the Mac and Linux. It's a package manager. And you install it with a curl command, you know. Right. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they even say, you know, we know this is a terrible way to do it, but, uh, you know.
1: But you here's can, the command. Here's the command. And it's, uh, it's easy. It's a lot easier. Oh, goodness. Yeah, we had some fun years ago talking about dangers of curl. Whoa. Well, and there have been some vulnerabilities in it, too. Okay, so we've been talking about quantum computing recently. Even though the capability to break our current public-key cryptographic security protocols remains purely theoretical, and I mean entirely theoretical, the existence of technology that could do so could render the asymmetric cryptography, which we depend upon to manage our symmetric keys, Useless for that purpose. In practice, the security of anything and everything we currently protect with certificates and the public handshakes we make to negotiate secret keys would be open to circumvention and abuse. Astonishing to me as it is, although bombs are not flying through the air between hostile superpowers, there is clearly very active, continuous, and slowly escalating cyber warfare being conducted among and between the world's hostile superpowers. The only thing keeping this under control and at parity is that none of these superpowers has meaningful superiority in cyberspace. Or, don't, as Leo don't, don't would never say, don't do it in cyber. Don't. I, don't. <laughs> <laughs> in, in in quantum computing's if quantum computing's promise is realized someone will have it first and that someone will have a massive destabilizing power over the entire rest of the world the degree to which we depend upon the stabilizing force of today's status quo should not be overstated i don't think you can overstate it And it's for this reason that researchers in cryptography armed with an understanding of what a future working quantum computer might be able to do. They've already been at work, as we know, and we've talked about it recently, for several years on the design and implementation of next generation so-called post-quantum replacement cryptography. The website Futurism... Runs a column called The Bite, and last Saturday's title was, "Oxford Physicist Unloads on Quantum Computing Industry," says it's basically a hype bubble. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, it would be a full-time job to know everything about what's going on in quantum computing, and I suppose that's this guy's job, you know. And that's good because I'm already overbooked. Uh, at the same time. I don't know anything about what biases this guy might have. He certainly seems disgruntled. You know, maybe he applied for some grant and didn't get it. I don't know. But I I found the synopsis of what he wrote to be interesting and worth sharing. (coughs) So this was in the Byte column on futurism. They wrote Oxford quantum physicist Nikita uh, Gurionov... Tore into the quantum computing industry this week, comparing the fanfare they have in quotes because that was his word around the tech to be a financial bubble in a searing commentary piece for the Financial Times. Now, Financial Times is behind a high paywall or I'd have gone to the source. But I tried and I couldn't get there. In other words, they said, in other words, he wrote, it's far more hype than substance. It's a scathing but also perhaps insightful analysis of a burgeoning field that at the very least still has a lot to prove. Despite billions of dollars being poured into quantum computing, Guryanov argues the industry has yet to develop a single product that's actually capable of solving practical problems. And he doesn't even mean crypto. Crypto turns out to be an extremely high bar because you can't have any fuzziness. And fuzziness seems to be a side effect of of quantum, at least now. Anyway, he says, that means these firms are collecting orders of magnitude more in financing than they're able to earn in actual revenue. He says, a growing bubble that could eventually burst. Goryanov wrote for the Financial Times, quote, The little revenue they generate mostly comes from consulting missions aimed at teaching other companies about, quote, how quantum computers will help their business, unquote. As opposed to genuinely harnessing any advantages that quantum computers have over classical computers. Okay, now from my part, while I think this is an interesting opinion from someone whom others apparently believe knows something about quantum physics, I'll just note as a counterpoint that something is impossible right up until the time it isn't. So, you know, and and this doesn't guarantee that that something will ever not be impossible, but when the stakes are as high as they are, This sort of tax-deductible research is easy to justify to a company's board of directors. Anyway, Nikita Guryanov went on to say, Contemporary quantum computers are so error-prone that any information one tries to process with them will almost instantly degenerate into noise, which scientists have been trying to overcome for years. He also took aim at other assumptions about the field, arguing that fears over quantum computers being able to crack even the most secure cryptographic schemes are overblown. And notably, Goryanov's rant in the Financial Times comes just weeks after a group of researchers found that a conventional computer was able to rival Google's uh, Sycamore quantum computer – Undermine Google's claim in 2019 of having achieved quantum supremacy, recalling <laughs> the sentiment "There's gold in them thar hills." Despite the industry's lackluster results to date, investors are still funneling untold sums of in into quantum computing ventures. You know, yeah, because what if? Um, Gurianov said, in essence. The quantum computing industry has yet to demonstrate any practical utility despite the fanfare. He says, why then is so much money flowing in? Well, it's mainly due to the fanfare. The money he argues is coming from investors who typically don't have any understanding of quantum physics while taking senior positions in companies and focusing solely on generating fanfare. So in short, Gurionov believes it's only a matter of time until the quantum bubble will pop and then the funding will dry up. So anyway, I wanted to share this presumably informed perspective since many tech media outlets covered this uh, this rant in the Financial Times Uh the Financial Times is as well regarded because this Oxford University quantum physicist may know what he's talking about, uh, because on some level it does appear to fit the evidence after all, and because it serves as an interesting counterpoint to what does indeed, despite huge expenditures, still seem to be quite a long ways off, if it is even ever practical. So, will this quip? Will will this quantum? Crypto panic ultimately turn out to have been misplaced? Maybe. But the stakes are clearly so high that a great deal of wealth is being transferred. And in Leo, as I said at the at the top, if factoring the number thirty three is considered a huge achievement just recently, <laughs> and if, as Goryanov appears to believe, this particular branch of quantum physics is not about to be visited by a breakthrough, then the crypto industry probably has time to get its post-quantum crypto right the first time. And I think that's good. You know, even if quantum never happens, the replacement of our aging quantum unsafe crypto only makes sense. You know, why not do it? And since the replacement of everything we will have now will take significant time, I'm very glad we're already working to determine what that replacement will be. And it'll be interesting to see whether it is the replacement of pre-quantum crypto with post-quantum crypto that finally bursts the quantum hype bubble. Maybe if, like, no one is suddenly any longer has any cause to worry about achieving, you know, a a crack in current crypto, then it's like, oh, well, okay, isn't weather forecasting already good enough? (laughs) I mean, yeah, it doesn't hurt to come up with better crypto uh,
0: techniques. And we know
1: how long it's going to take. It's going to take forever. Yeah,
0: I'm using ECC and, you know, some other, like I use that, uh, what is it, the 25519 now for my SSH keys. Uh,
1: It doesn't hurt, right? Well, those are all crackable.
0: Um, well, oh, right. That's right. <laughs> Th- those are
1: all, those are, I mean, anything public, a- anything public key. Today. So, a- Elliptic curve is public right. key. Right, 25519 is public key. Right. Anything public key today. And so that's why I think we do need to lay, yeah. m- and we know, we know how long it's going to take. It's going to take forever to replace what we have.
0: Right. This is a common problem in general for people who cover technology fusion's hard uh you know quantum's hard like the easy
1: problems have been solved yeah uh
0: ai (laughs) is hard self-driving vehicles are hard does it mean they're not going to happen not necessarily but maybe not uh i think it's good to be skeptical dvorak taught me that he thought everything was crap (laughs) <laughs> uh, it, but you know what? That's actually if you're going to pick a default position, that's the most likely correct because most stuff uh. is crap. But then you're going to miss a few jewels, like he thought the mouse was a terrible idea, and you're and you know no everybody remembers that. Nobody remembers the hundred and one other things that he thought were crap that went away. So yeah. it's it's something I deal with a lot. You know, uh, we're talking a lot now about augmented reality, and uh, I I think I was right when I said 3D. In, in movies and TVs was a terrible idea and is was a gimmick uh, I'm not sure about VR I think is a gimmick AR I'm not sure about Quantum, you know the real problem is, is as you point out there's a gold rush because the governments are throwing money at scientists so of course they're going to Oh, you know why they are, too. I mean, oh, my God. If somebody does come up with it, I I would like, and I think they're starting to, but I would like to see them throw as much money at Fusion. Fusion could solve so many of our energy. It would solve all of our energy issues today. Yeah. Um, But it's hard. So is it never going to happen? I don't know. We don't know. It's an interesting conundrum for the tech journalist.
1: So I have a couple bits of miscellany um a black hat the the organization is someone notorious for being quite slow to release the materials after their conferences so an enterprising an enterprising researcher has put them all up on google drive with open public sharing access he tweeted a link to the collection and i've captured it in this week's show notes and to make it easy for those who don't want to Track it down in this week's show notes. I also gave it a GRC shortcut of BH, for Black Hat, obviously, BH2022. So if you go to grc.sc slash BH2022, that'll bounce you over to Google Drive, and you will see a ton of PDFs containing all of the slides for all of the presentations for Black Hat 2022 which I just thought was cool. Ah, these are great, too. That's great. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Black Hat. Um, okay. C-Surf uh, uh, NPM, uh, the package manager library, has a mistake. So the, the, so the NPM-hosted JavaScript library named c is a JavaScript library designed to protect applications from cross-site request forgery attacks known as CSRFs. You can see where the name CSURF got its name. So these are cross-site request forgery attacks. library protects JavaScript apps from that. Unfortunately, researchers at the security company Fort Bridge discovered a CSRF vulnerability in CSRF. And unfortunately, The package apparently cannot be used to protect itself. Since the project's authors have apparently decided it's not worth repairing, they chose instead to mark Sea Surf as vulnerable and deprecated, and I suppose at the same time as evidence of the need for it. So, there. Uh, I didn't think I was going to have anything new to share about Spinrite today. Work is proceeding well. It's running and I almost have all of the obvious problems fixed, which I created by this basically <laughs> rewriting most of it, uh, except the UI stuff. Uh, I may rearrange its real-time activity screen to make better use of its real estate as a consequence of other things that I've had to change on that screen. You know, lots of field lengths had to change in order to make to make room for the number of sectors that drives now have and so forth. But in any event, this morning I encountered a Twitter direct message from Matt Foote, one of our listeners with whom I exchanged notes on Twitter. He explained that he was searching for how Spinrite works, and he encountered a surprisingly recent 2021 YouTube video showing a full demo walkthrough of Spinrite 2 which used Roman numerals back then, running on a 20-megabyte Seagate st 225 drive. I hadn't seen Spinrite 2 run in quite a while, so I wound up watching the entire 13-minute well-narrated video. The drive was initially actually in pretty bad shape, but Spinrite fixed it. Uh, for anyone who's interested, it's this week's shortcut of the week, so grc.sc-887. Uh, which will bounce you over to a 13-minute YouTube video, which is sort of interesting, Uh, and thanks to Matt. A little bit of closing the loop with our listeners. Uh, Tyson Moore said, Hi, Steve, just listened to to SN886. So that was last week. He said, I have a different take on NIC LEDs, you know, network interface card or controller LEDs, you might find interesting. He said, I worked... For a large Canadian telco that had disabled activity lights on almost all of their switches and routers, okay, which makes me shudder, but he said... Um, can you imagine that, Leo? It must have been very Having dark the in there. <laughs> oh my God! Well, you would think the power had failed, right? I mean,
0: oh, like, I use my lights all the
1: time. Oh, I need those yeah. act
0: lights because
1: I need. Yeah, 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 yeah. He says from small one U sixteen port access switches to thirty U. That's that's like you know 30 <laughs> 19 rack. inch rack yeah. U height. Yeah, may multi terabit routers. Wow. He said, on many devices, this was done through undocumented commands or special firmware. Wow. He says, though it made troubleshooting difficult, (laughs) yeah, do you think? Uh, The idea is that an adversary wouldn't be able to distinguish dormant or lightly used Uh links from busy ones. Okay. Okay especially when faced with hundreds or thousands of options in a large telephone exchange. He says, I was never fully sold on the usefulness of this measure, but as a defense in depth strategy, I figure it couldn't hurt. A- and I guess my feeling is if you could like turn them on when you need them or like, you know, yeah. like, have like th- yeah. then
0: you Because know. I look at the activity light to know if the oh, car is talking.
1: I can't imagine yeah. not having those little flickering lights. You
0: absolutely need them. And the them. router and the modem, you really need them. Yes, to know
1: what the hell Am is Am I connected? Going
0: on. Am I not? Yeah. Yeah. I turn them off, so. though, on the Wi-Fi access points because I don't like those little green lights all over the house. But other than that,
1: you yeah, know, that's an interesting point.
0: Yeah. I don't like all those LEDs everywhere.
1: Okay, so Tyson, thank you. Uh, also, um, okay, now I, I let the, I removed this person's name because I, I felt I needed to be maybe a little critical and I didn't want to embarrass him. He said, hi, Steve. I enjoyed your discussion of the last pass breach. Whilst users' vaults are strongly encrypted and therefore presumably fairly safe, do you think there could be another risk in that conceivably the hackers could have introduced a backdoor into the last pass code. How can we know the code itself is still safe given that hackers have had access to it for an unspecified amount of time? Okay, well, I think this is where the meaning of words matters. You know, since everyone is on the outside looking in, we don't know precisely what happened, and I doubt we ever will. So we can choose to take their CEO's statement as fact or not. If we do choose to accept it as fact, then exactly what he said matters. He said, quote, this is the CEO for who I quoted last week. We have determined that an unauthorized party gained access to portions of the LastPass development environment through a single compromised developer account and took portions of source code and some proprietary LastPass technical information. OK, certainly taking source code is a world different from may have modified source code. We must assume that they have well-established source code controls in place and that verifying the extent of the intrusion would have been their top priority. Yeah. So again, if we choose to trust the CEO's statement, then there's no danger to us and we can hope that they will respond to this by making a like making anything like this from ever happening again much less likely, and if we choose not to trust what the CEO said, then nothing he said matters anyway.
0: people so, may not know that you know a code repository isn't just a bunch of text files that you can change, and then and, and, and then nobody just, will notice. Nobody will know. There's a whole right. process, you know. It's uh, right. and there's and of course. There's a complete log of everything that's been done. They even, I think that's nice, they call the command blame. And you can see who's, who does to blame for <laughs> a particular well,
1: commit. And how many times have we talked about, like, you know, the, there's a problem. And then they'll go back and they'll go, oh, yeah. that was Johnny when yeah. he was having that bad week yeah. in 1987 uh, or something. Yeah. It's like, oh. You can
0: see yeah. in, in any... Uh, Blame is a git command, but there there is an
1: audit trail. Yeah, there are always you can see
0: which lines were changed, who changed them, when all of that is completely uh, transparent. Right. Yeah.
1: And on on Saturday, Leo, Bill Crahen tweeted, hey, Steve, just set up my San Sarah last night. He said smaller than I imagined, but still fascinating to watch. I don't have mine yet. But that means that they have shipped them, and presumably I'll have a box on my porch, and you will too. I think I added – I think I asked for the addition of black sand, and apparently that really freaked out customs for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, because it looks like gunpowder. I don't (laughs) see why. (laughs) Or or like, you know, (laughs) micro caviar or something. I don't know. Can I have yellow cake on mine? (laughs) I think that would be the best. (laughs) <laughs> um, and well, uh, finally, one of our listeners tweeted, Just listen to SN886. I've been in the foo at duck.com beta for about a week now, meaning the email filtering that we talked about last week. He says, It has worked as advertised and as you described. I'm not seeing 85% of my email with trackers, more like 50 to 60 it's equally surprising to me who is and who isn't using trackers, mm. and he didn't say more. But now I'm curious. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I think I need to start routing some stuff through with it and find out because that seems really cool to find out. Okay, and now the one thing I am more excited about than anything else. What? Yes, this must I, I be have, good. I have a new sci-fi author, Leo. Thanks to one of our listeners, whose Twitter handle is LaForge129, and LaForge, thank you, thank you, thank you, I'm very excited to announce the discovery of a completely new and blessedly prolific science fiction author. This author's name is pronounced Scott Uha, which is spelled J-U-C-H-A. His website domain is his name, so Scott, S-C-O-T-T, J-U-C-H-A dot com. Okay, so first of all, Scott can write, which is an endangered talent these days. And he has a pleasantly expansive working vocabulary, which is a joy to encounter. He writes stories containing well-formed characters who at every turn Do what you hope they're going to do and then surprise you by exceeding your expectations. Many of his Amazon reviewers in their review, they're like their final review after they finished the final book in his The Silver Ships series, state that this is the best space opera series they've ever read. Um, It would take a lot in my mind, to compete with Rick Brown's Frontiers saga. But there's room for a top two. I received LaForge's tweet a week ago today. And since then, I've read the first book.
0: Oh, I know why you like this. There's 20 of them! (laughs) Oh my
1: god! Actually 24, because he did a a short little four-book series that branches off after the third, after book thirteen, oh, so I M- need As I G- said, Leo, he's prolific. Yes, he's also on Audible, narrated, narrated by Grover Gardner. Oh, I love
0: Grover um, Gardner.
1: Oh, good. All he, right. The f- okay. So, uh, 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 so okay. So I read the first book, then I needed to see what was about to happen next. Mm-hmm. So I read just enough of the second book to relieve the pr- that pressure.
0: But. Then I went back
1: <laughs> then I went back and reread, skimmed the first third of the first book in order just to relive wow. its key parts. Wow. Um, you know, because now I knew what the author had in mind. Uh, and at one point my wife Lori asked where I was in my reading. And I explained <laughs> that I was rereading book one. She just shook her head (laughs) and and said, we are so different that way. (laughs) And, And so I explained slashed, asked, I said to her, haven't you ever seen a movie that was so good that you immediately watched it again? Able to enjoy it even more since you knew how everything fit together. And that generated some more head shaking and... I'll, I'm I thinking. Lori says
0: life is too short to read a book more than <laughs> once. I'm guessing, but
1: yeah, uh, exactly. We actually encountered a, a, another couple, neighbor friend of ours, out on our our. Uh, our walk, our evening walk yesterday. And one, of, one of them said that when I was explaining this, that she goes to the end of the book to see how it ends. <laughs> it simplifies. And it's like, Oh my God. <laughs> you know. Just cut to the chase. <laughs> oh, so anyway, uh, 10 years ago in 2012, Scott began writing in April of last year. He finished his 24 novel series, which he calls The Silver Ships. All of the first five novels in the series were three times awarded Amazon's number one best selling sci fi book. And they also won the number two spot twice across multiple science fiction categories of first contact, space flight, and alien invasion. The story oh, by three is favorite
0: set... topics. and yeah. there's asteroid mining as well, just to oh, baby. A- a-
1: a- actually, the main character, Alex, is an asteroid miner in the beginning. So um, the story is set in the far future. It follows a number of Earth-descended colonies which encounter a very non-human, quite powerful and quite hostile alien race. Ever since I caught up with Rick Brown's Frontier Saga series, I've been casting about looking for something next, you know, while Rick continues working on his books. So I am absolutely certain that I found what I've been looking for. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I love what has happened so far. Oh, boy. The books are all on Amazon. They're all available through their Kindle Unlimited program. And as I mentioned, also on Audible, narrated by Grover Gardner. Uh, look for the Silver Ships series. Adding it to my list. And oh, Leo, oh, I like it that um, it's uh, Kindle
0: Unlimited because that means I can dip into yes. it and just see if I like it. Yes. Uh, good. Yes.
1: I already told uh, Jammer B. John is in the middle of a trilogy, but he <laughs> and he like so, but he can't I'm, wait. So. I'm just
0: finishing the Singularity traps, so I've got a ways to go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. O- yeah. Only a it's few just, more chapters oh. on that. Okay, uh, let's take our last break, and yes. then we're going to talk about uh, what semantic found in eight, more than 1,800 mobile apps.
0: Wow. Are you, have you ever attempted to write a, novel, a sci-fi novel yourself? It'd just be a
1: bad use of my time.
0: Yeah. No, I wouldn't be yeah. now. Maybe in retirement, whenever that is. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could, because I would love to be a writer. Uh, That seems like the perfect occupation, right? It's kind of like coding, right? I would love it too.
1: Yeah. I I mean, if I, yeah.
0: But I can't, I can never think of any good stories. (laughs) So I don't think it's going to happen. Our show today uh, is brought to you by listeners like you. Not you, or you wouldn't be hearing this. Uh, The people who are members of Club Twit don't get these adverts. They get ad-free versions of this show and every show we do. Uh, But it's their donations, and it's not expensive, seven bucks a month, that lets us do so many more things. We've been able to launch new shows thanks to Club Twit like This Week in Space. shows. You know, when we launch a show, we spend a lot of money to launch a show uh, with no chance for revenue at first, you have to build enough of an audience to get advertisers interested, and that can take time, years. In fact, in the past, we've had to cancel shows because even though I knew they were great shows, uh, we just didn't have enough of an audience to uh, get the advertising. In fact, many of our best shows, have that's happened to, like the new screensavers and, and our gaming show, Game On. So the club is great because it gives us a chance to create new shows subsidized by the club, and, and then as they grow, if they develop an audience, put them out for the rest of the world. That's what's happened with This Week in Space. We have a number of shows that are club-only right now. Hands on Mac with Micah Sargent. Paul Thorat's uh, Hands on Windows. The Ultimate, I'm sorry, The Untitled Linux Show. That's Jonathan Bennett's. Stacey Hagenbotham's Book Club, which is a sci-fi book club, Steve. You might enjoy that. Uh, and, of course, Dick T Bartolo's Gizfiz. Plus new shows coming uh, new one off content special ad, uh, club events and so forth so that's a second benefit you get you get all of our current shows ad free you get unpublished shows in the discord you can actually participate in the making of those shows the discord's also great for conversations uh, going back and forth and uh, in every uh possible area including you know, things I don't talk about on the show, like crypto and uh, and uh, NFTs. We've got a book club. We've got coding, hardware, ham radio, hacking, uh, and of all, all of our shows. And then one more feature. I, I know, hard to believe all this for seven bucks. I know. It's amazing. One more feature, which is the Twit Plus feed. That's stuff that isn't part of the podcast, conversations before and after the shows, things like that. And, and of course, all of those shows that are club only. Seven bucks a month. I mean, honestly, uh, I think we could and probably should charge more, but Lisa wants to make it available to everybody. A cup of a a cup, a cost of a a couple of lattes. uh, And it really helps us out. Um, So if you would go to twit.tv slash club twit, join the club. There's a monthly and or a yearly plan. There's enterprise plans as well. If your business wants to subsidize it, we have a number of businesses that, that I think it's mostly because of this show, actually. Uh, have subscriptions. I should mention, if you go to twit.tv slash club twit, you'll also see at the bottom individual subscriptions for shows. This show, uh, hands-on Mac, hands-on Windows, $2.99 a month. So that's another option. If you just want one show ad free and none of the other benefits, uh, you know, two ninety nine a month. I think seven bucks a month and you get everything is the way to go. We thank you so much for uh, your support and thanks to all the members uh, of the club because they are making all of this is possible. Twit.tv slash
1: club twit. And now, and, what? Yes. <laughs> apparently, Lori is listening to us. Uh-oh. Because, uh <laughs> she, she, oh. Because she sent me a text and she said I that she had watched some movies multiple times. Oh, she said right. the Harry Potter movies. She's a big fan of the Harry Potter movies, and so there you go. You know, and for me, I, I think probably the Matrix. I'm sure I watched it a second time. Terminator. The first time I saw that, I would have had to it's like watch it again. So you know, there's just some that are really good. So
0: all right, yeah. yeah. I'm not a big movie rewatcher. I try because I foolishly have bought movies in the past, and that's a waste if you're not going to watch it again. But uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. Embedding AWS credentials. Last Thursday, Kevin Watkins, a security researcher with Symantec, revealed the results of Symantec sobering research into a previously unappreciated or at least grossly underappreciated serious weakness and vulnerability created by the way today's increasingly powerful mobile applications are being developed. The problem surrounds the collision of the increasingly ubiquitous use of the cloud by mobile apps with the merging of outsourced code libraries and SDKs which use the cloud to contain their sometimes massive databases. Another problem appears to arise from a failure to follow the old adage which carries the well-known abbreviation RTFM. Uh, we know what that stands for. The data belonging to both users and the enterprises hosting these dangerous, ill-designed apps are thus put at risk, as is the data of all the customers of these enterprises. The problem is big. So I wanted to get specific and put a sharp point on this, fleshing it out by sharing what semantics research revealed. They open this report with a punchline over three quarters of the apps Symantec analyzed contained valid AWS access tokens that allowed access to private AWS cloud services. Okay. Now that was 1859 iOS and Android apps, which were found to be leaking actionable AWS cloud credentials that must be kept private. So here's how Symantec framed the problem and explained what they found. They said, most of us by now have been impacted in some way by supply chain issues. An increase in the price of fuel and other items, delivery delays, and a lack of product availability are just some of the consequences of supply chain issues stemming from recent events around the world. Okay, well, that's not uh, doesn't apply to us. They said, however, in the context of software and technology infrastructure, the consequences resulting from supply chain issues are very different. Mobile apps, for example, can contain vulnerabilities introduced in the supply chain that can potentially lead to the exposure of sensitive information, which in turn could be used by threat actors or, for other attacks. They said mobile App supply chain vulnerabilities are often added by app developers, both knowingly and unknowingly, who are likely unaware of the downstream security impacts, putting not only the app users' privacy at risk, but sometimes putting their company and employers' privacy and data at risk, too. Okay, so in other words, this is what I would call the the modern modular software component assembly dilemma where it's too easy to plug this library into that library and have this API calling into that API and where everything just appears to work. But without the developers ever obtaining a full in-depth working understanding of exactly what's going on, And of course, you know, that's the whole point of using a plug-in modular library and its APIs is that you don't need to learn everything about what the serving library is doing. The trouble is, this is also the way implementation mistakes happen. And in the case of AWS, the mistakes have huge consequences. So they said... Similar to the supply chain for material goods, mobile application software development undergoes a process that includes the collection of materials, such as software libraries and software development kits, you know, SDKs, manufacturing or developing the mobile application, and shipping the end result to the customer, often using mobile app stores. This research, they said, examined the type of upstream supply chain issues that can make their way into mobile apps, making them vulnerable. The issues include mobile app developers unknowingly using vulnerable external software libraries and SDKs, companies outsourcing the development of their mobile apps, which then end up with vulnerabilities that put them at risk, and companies often large ones, developing multiple apps across teams using cross-team vulnerable libraries in their apps. They said, in order to better understand the prevalence and scope of these supply chain vulnerabilities, we took a look at publicly available apps in our global app collection that contained hard-coded Amazon Web Services credentials. Hard-coded cloud credentials is a type of vulnerability, they said, we've been looking at for years and have extensively covered in the past. This time, in order to get to the bottom of the supply chain impacts caused by the issue, we've looked into why app developers hard-code cloud credentials inside apps where the hard-coded credentials are located in the apps, tracking the sequence or chain of events leading to the vulnerability, and finally, the size of the problem and its impact. They said we identified 1,859 publicly available apps, both Android and iOS, containing hard-coded AWS credentials. Almost all were iOS apps, 98%, which is really a curious number. And they said, a trend and difference between the platforms we've been tracking for years, possibly linked to different app store vetting practices and policies. And uh, I don't understand. Or maybe the application market f- is, is just that different between iOS and Android. Oh, it they is. Said, Any- it is. Yeah. 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 That, that would be my guess. And they said, in any case, we examined the scope and extent of the risks involved when AWS credentials were found embedded inside apps. We found the following. Over three quarters, 77% of the apps contained valid AWS access tokens, allowing access to private AWS cloud services. Jeez Louise. Uh, I know, Leo. They're like, so like hard-coded pulled... in? yes. Yes, there it's like, you know, we we have we, talked about how lame it is for routers to hard code in a username and password for like some backdoor, you know, Cisco spent years recovering from that practice. Is this
0: cuz they like they're using AWS as a server for images or something and so they have to do
1: that? No, I mean, that it, may be one it, of the Maybe reasons, it's not private stuff. It's like parts of the app. Well, but yeah, but but this is access to private oh. AWS cloud services. Seems like a bad so, idea. So, yeah. Sounds bad. And then they also said close to half, 47% of those apps contained valid AWS tokens that also gave full access to numerous, often millions <coughs> of private files via the Amage, the Amazon Simple Storage <laughs> service. That's definitely bad. (laughs) That's definitely bad. And they're going to get much more specific about this in a minute. So then they said, we will explore the type of private data exposed in the examples discussed later in this blog, but the message is clear. Apps with hard-coded AWS access tokens are vulnerable. Act are a vulnerable, active, and present risk. They said, Okay, well, so, so, so yeah, and, and present a serious risk, they said. So, you know, I, I should explain that it would be entirely possible for apps not to embed, and Leo, you already get this, not to embed static AWS access tokens into their code. You know, and again, how many times have we talked about the insanity of a Cisco router For example, embedding some backdoor access username and password into its firmware where it's ripe for discovery. You know, it's just malpractice and laziness. In the case of well-connected mobile apps, it would be trivial to have apps reach out to obtain the AWS token on the fly over a secure encrypted and authenticated connection that would have the added flexibility of allowing the app's developers to change AWS credentials on the fly if some access write problems, such as we'll be discussing in a minute, were to be found. In any event, Symantec continues. They said, we then looked into why and where exactly the AWS access tokens were inside the apps and if they were found in other apps we discovered to get this that over half 53 percent of the apps were using the same aws access tokens found in other apps interestingly these apps were often from different app developers and companies this pointed to an upstream supply chain vulnerability And that's exactly what we found, they wrote. The AWS access tokens could be traced to a shared library, third-party SDK, or other shared component used in developing the apps. As for the remaining question of why app developers are using hard-coded access keys, Leo, to your point, they said, We found the reasons to include... Downloading or uploading assets and resources required for the app, usually large media files, recordings, or images. Accessing configuration files for the app and or registering the device and collecting device information, storing it in the cloud. Accessing cloud services that require authentication, such as translation services, for example. Or, no specific reason, dead code and or used for testing and never removed. They said if an access key only has permission to access a specific cloud service or asset, for example, accessing public image files from the corporate Amazon S3 service, the impact may be minimal. Some app developers may be assuming this is the case, when they embed and use hard-coded AWS Access tokens to access a single bucket or file in Amazon S3. The problem is often that the same AWS Access token exposes all files and buckets in the Amazon S3 cloud, often corporate files, infrastructure files and components, database backups, etc., not to mention cloud services beyond Amazon S3 that are accessible using the same AWS access token. They said, imagine a business-to-business company providing access to its service using a third-party SDK and embedding an AWS hard-coded access key exposing not only the private data of the app using the third-party SDK, but also the private data of all apps using the third-party component. Unfortunately, this is not an uncommon occurrence, as you can see in the following case study examples. Okay, so we've got, I think, three here. Uh, and they they kept them anonymous, not to embarrass the actual provider. but these are specific iOS apps. They said we found uh, as a, in an intranet platform SDK, we found a business to business company providing an intranet and communication platform that had also provided a mobile SDK that, its customers could use to access the platform. Unfortunately, the SDK, also contained the business-to-business company's <laughs> cloud infrastructure keys. Oh, please. Oh. Exposing all of its customers' private data on the business-to-business company's platform. Their customers' corporate data, financial records, and employees' private data was wow. exposed. Wow. All the files the company used on its intranet for over fifteen thousand medium to large size companies were also exposed. Why did the company hard code the aWS access token in order to access <laughs> the did A- de- better <laughs> um, exactly yes yes. In order to access the AWS translation service. What?
0: Oh, please.
1: Instead, oh, of please. Limi- instead of limiting the hard-coded access token for use with the translation cloud service, anyone with the token had full unfettered access to all the business-to-business companies' AWS cloud services and uses. Wow. Wow.
0: I'm starting to think that just as we license drivers before they're allowed to go on the road, we should have some sort of minimum competency standard for programmers before they're allowed to publish software.
1: I know. Uh, I know, and it's completely lacking. It's... You know, (laughs) doctors and lawyers have to get have to go through extra school and get certified and pass tests to demonstrate that they have a in the case of lawyers you know a basic understanding of the way to do their job programmers not so much wow, i mean not at all not actually all the, and yeah. you know there are there are as we know i t pro t v produces certifications those exist, but you don't have to have one in order to write code yeah. We have another instance, a digital identity and authentication. They said, we discovered several popular banking apps on iOS that rely on the same vulnerable (laughs) third-party AI digital identity SDK. Outsourcing the digital identity and authentication component ...of an app is a common development pattern as the complexities of providing different forms of authentication, maintaining the secure infrastructure, and accessing and managing the identities can occur at a high cost and requires expertise in order to do it right. Unfortunately, in this case, things were not done right. Embedded in the SDK, which again was shared by several popular banking apps on iOS embedded in the SDK were cloud credentials that could place entire infrastructures at risk. The credentials could expose private authentication data and keys belonging to every banking and financial app using the SDK. Furthermore, users' biometric digital fingerprints used for authentication along with users' personal data names, dates of birth, etc., were all exposed in the cloud. In addition, the access key exposed the infrastructure server and blueprints, including the API source code and AI models using used for the mobile operation. In total, over 300,000 Biometric digital fingerprints were leaked across five mobile banking apps, five mobile banking apps using the SDK. And finally, online gaming. They said, often, already established companies rely on outsourcing or partnering with other business-to-business companies for their digital and online services. This allows them to quickly move their brand online online ...without having to build and support the underlying technology platform. At the same time, by relying on the outsourced company to run the technology platform, they often have to give exclusive access to their business data. Furthermore, they have to trust that the outsourced company will protect the online private data, not to mention the reputation of the brand overall... Boy, talk about skating on thin ice. They said, we found a large hospitality and entertainment company, depending on another company for their technology platform, even forming a sports betting joint venture with the company. With a highly regulated sports betting market. The the complexities of building and supporting infrastructure for online gambling cannot be underestimated. Unfortunately, by giving the joint venture company exclusive access to that part of its business, the company also exposed its gaming operations, business data, and customer data to the world. In total, 16 different online gambling apps using the vulnerable library exposed full infrastructure and cloud services across all AWS cloud services with full read, write, root account credentials. And they said all of the organizations whose vulnerable apps were discussed in these case studies had been notified yeah. about the issues we uncovered. Now you know why
0: there's so many... S3 bucket exploits.
1: Yes. Where, I mean,
0: this happens, this is a yes. the, probably the most common kind of breach. Yes. It seems like Amazon maybe isn't doing a good job of explaining permissions or something. Like maybe yeah. Amazon could fix this.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It is, uh, I, I think what happens is that it's easy to, it's so easy to use uh, Amazon S three buckets. I have I I have and maintain a bunch of my own. Like every time I every time I upload the edited audio to Elaine, copies of the podcast go into an S three bucket just to have it in the cloud so that it's, you know, archived, archived. The problem is I think that developers get it going with like without any and without any access controls and then they just forget to go back and lock it down and like restrict it so that it's not just left as public because unfortunately that's the way it is by default it's public unless you make it private and that seems to be the mistake that's being made crazy wow. And and it just it, – it's, it's also – maybe it's because it's remoted that you – somehow you don't have the same level of visibility and access controls that you do for, for something that, that, that that's local. Or just, you know, they didn't RTFM. They didn't, yeah. you know. I mean I seem to remember having
0: set up quite a few of these. They kind of – tell this is like the password. This is, gives you access. Uh, you know, they even hide it. Right, you have to reveal it. Um, yeah. it. It seems to me that well, I don't know what's going on.
1: <laughs> Lazy, It's not good, or yeah, or something. Well, and the problem is, and this was the point that semantic was, was making is that is that we've got a, a a difficult, a clearly a difficult to secure or or too often not secured cloud resource which because of the way business to business are now beginning to contract with each other for big chunks of responsibility, that, that, that cross-business contracting is what Symantec is calling a new form of supply chain. And if your, if your provider of these services isn't careful with the design of their, of their product – um its inherent security appears to be lacking there's no other way to explain why 16 different entirely separate gambling environments which all use a common package would have had all of their data cross exposed if it weren't for the uh, for the misdesign of that package <laughs> yeah unbelievable
0: Yeah, that's the other problem. People just kind of willy-nilly just pasting packages in. It's like, oh,
1: well, because who wants to learn all that? I don't want to write all that code. Oh, look, somebody wrote it. We we can get it from Joe. Great.
0: Import. Import. (laughs) Press the import button. Yeah. Well, that, I'm kind of sympathetic to that. It's really up to Joe to make that secure. (laughs) Joe's got to do a better job. Wow. Well, another great uh, security now, as always. Thank you, Steve uh steve gibson lives at grc.com it's all sorts of great stuff there of course Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive recovery and uh, mass storage recovery and maintenance utility and you could pick up a copy right now 6.0 6.1 is in process we'll be out uh sometime and you'll get it for free if you buy today and he's working on 7.0 apparently i just found out so busy man
1: Plans, plant planning for seven. You got to think about. I know, it what, it, first. I know what it's going to be. You got
0: to know, know what, what S three buckets be. to stick it in. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's one good thing about assembly language. Probably not Hopefully. a lot of S three. Hopefully, it's not a leaky buckets. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: And there's uh, no one else's modules who I'm, n- nope, that I'm. Nobody importing. else makes them. Nope. Right. That's where are you right. going to go to find <laughs> those right.
0: modules? Look, we've got a whole library of assembly language routines you can you can use. Um, aggressively uh, non-cross-platform. That's Steve right there, in in a nutshell. Nope, 8086, that's it. Uh, But, boy, I'll tell you what, it works good. He also has, of course, the copies of this show. Now, he has the 64-kilobit audio, which is the kind of standard audio podcast version, but he also has a 16-kilobit version for people who really don't want to spend the bandwidth. And he's got transcripts. Elaine Ferris writes those out after every show it takes a few days. That's really nice to read along as you listen or to use for reference or to search. I bet you, I know, I know, somewhere out there, there's somebody with three shelves worth of three ring binders with all the transcripts printed out and indexed. Don't you think, Steve, somebody's done that? The Magnum yeah. Opus. Um, all of that's free at GRC.com. All you got to do is buy SpinWrite, everything else takes care of itself. Lots of other stuff uh, as well. You can leave him a question or a comment or suggestion at grc.com slash feedback. Probably the better way to do it is to go to his uh, Twitter account, uh, sggrc sggrc. You can DM him there as DMs are open. Uh, After the fact we have the show as well at our website, twit.tv slash SN. We've got the 64 kilobit audio and we also have video, which is weird but we got it. Oh, Time time to go. Show's over. Uh, <laughs> uh, I heard, I swear, and I must be dreaming, wind chimes. Do you have wind chimes in your studio, in your office? Uh, that was Lori's
1: uh, uh, iMessage coming in. Uh, yes, because I do have uh, sounds associated with everything. Nice. So she's, so hers, she's hers very relaxing. Nice wind chimes. nice sound. Yep. I saw it.
0: I, I I I must have died and gone to heaven. Steve Gibson has wind chimes at the GRC Labs. There's no wind here. Except what comes out of my mouth. It's my a little mouth. hot air, but no wind. Yeah, Hot air here today, I'll tell you. Uh, we uh, also uh, invite you to watch live if you want. You could. Uh, we stream it live, as we do with all our shows. We just open up the cameras in the studio and let you watch it. Live.twit.tv. It's usually right after MacBreak Weekly. That's about you know, one thirty uh, Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, 20.30 UTC. Uh, if you're watching live, you can chat with us live in IRC. That IRC site is irc.twit.tv. You can go there with a browser. Uh, it has the deets on how you could use a IRC client if you prefer. If you do it more than once, you should probably get an IRC client. Uh, of course, the Discord folks are also chatting behind the scenes. If you're a member of Club Twit. YouTube channel also dedicated to security now. That's most useful, I think. Well, if you watch a lot of YouTube, it's great. But also it's a great way to send just a little clip to somebody, because that's easy to do on YouTube. So if you know, if you heard something you thought, I gotta I gotta send this to Joey. He keeps putting our S three bucket credentials in the app. <laughs> you can just snip that part and send it to Joey. Let Steve explain why it's a bad idea. Uh Oh, of course, the best way to get it would be subscribe. That way, you know, you can add to your six-foot shelf of binders. You could add the complete security now. Uh, we are we are now in our 18th year. 19th year. Yep. 18th year. 18th. Yep. Uh, episode 887. So collect all 887. We only do 10 at a time in the feed. So if you want to go past, you know, 877, you'll have to go to the website, either Steve's or ours, and download all of them. But they're all up there on the website. You can get them all. Steve, have a great week. I am going to be reading this new uh, Silver Ships.
1: I'm excited about it. I think you're going to like it. It's just, it's just so pleasant to read somebody who can write, and oh. this guy writes well. Nice. And, oh, I can't uh, wait. I'm excited.
0: A great story.
1: And I love first contact stories. I really do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This yeah. is yeah. that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Security Now. Bye. Security Now.